Check out Unpacking Israeli History podcast. From the history of infamous terror groups, Hamas and Hezbollah, to the story of Nakba, to Israel's disengagement from Gaza in 2005, there's so much to uncover. Unpacking Israeli History cuts through the noise and helps you understand Israel's present through understanding Israel's history. Catch up on previous seasons and enjoy new episodes from Season 6 each week. So, educate yourself. Learn the history behind the headlines. Find Unpacking Israeli History wherever you listen to podcasts. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Looking for hair removal tools that not only deliver smooth results, but also make you feel totally in control? Enter Conair Girlbomb. They're like your secret weapons for smooth, sleek results. Made just for us. From the ultimate Girlbomb grip to the professional-grade blades. Say goodbye to settling for less. With Conair Girlbomb, you get the precision and power that used to only be exclusive to men's tools. So take your hair removal routine to the next level with Conair Girlbomb. Available at Walgreens. Cool Zone Media. Hello, and welcome to Cool People Did Cool Stuff, your weekly reminder that sometimes people try to do things to stop the bad things. I'm your host, Margaret Kiljoy, and with me today is a guest who's named Sarah Marshall. <gasps> Hi, Sarah. That's true. Hi, Margaret. I'm so happy to be here. Yay. As you do a cool thing. Sarah is the host of You're Wrong About. Did you ever go through a period where it was going to end with dot, dot, dot in the title? I feel mm. like there's like an implied dot, 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 and I've seen it rendered that way. It's like the question mark and who's the boss. Yeah. Do you think that every now and then they accidentally wrote it as who is the boss? <laughs> <laughs> or like who's W-H-O-S-E the boss? Like who's the boss is this? <laughs> yeah, it's totally. got to be someone's. Is it yours, Jeff? <laughs> I wonder, I don't, it might have been a different, it was one of these things, one of these very simple, the way that English and contractions work, where I was working on this, this activist zine during Occupy or whatever, and we were like put out a new zine every week with news. And my co-editor was like, who wrote this fucking article? And looked at me and was like, it couldn't have been you. They used like, who's wrong? And I was like, <laughs> I wrote that one. We have not huh. had much sleep. <laughs> really as you can see my faculties are deteriorating yeah it is 2011 and occupy has destroyed all of our brains uh, but uh what hasn't destroyed our brains is our producer sophie hi sophie hi sophie hi i just wonder sarah question for sarah how many times are you having a conversation with somebody and do they go that could be uh something that people are uh, wrong about Maybe mm-hmm. maybe you should do that as a topic for your show. How often does that happen? You know, I hardly socialize, so not that much. But like, <laughs> pr- probably on average, three times a month. Um, and my my favorite is when it's on something that like, if you've listened to the show, it really like has nothing to do with anything we've ever talked about. But it's but it's a thing to you know. I'm sure people say this to you both, where people are like. I'm sure there are too many podcasts already. I, you know, I, I'm sure you would 
you you don't think people should start podcasts. And I'm like, no, start your own podcast. And then you won't try and get me to do it for you. <laughs> that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> also, I uh, think you do socialize more than that th- you think, because I saw you this week and I'm seeing you again. Like that's true. Well, that's, that's the Sophie exception. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I'm like three times a month. Honey. <laughs> Wait, honey. How many? Sophie, how many like hard introverts do you have in your life? Like how many of us are you our Ooh. primary socialization? Well, that's because I am marching. That's because we all find each other. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. We all find well, each other. We're like, do you want to do Sophie, you're some- like the center of the wagon wheel. <laughs> We're like, do you want to do something that's not overstimulating with me? Great. Low stakes. Let's go. Yeah. One other overstimulate. No. Uh, our audio engineer is Daniel. It is Daniel. Hi, Daniel. I love you. Hi, Daniel. Hi, Daniel. Our theme music was written for us by Unwoman. Sarah, have you ever, ever heard of the environment? Ooh. Yes. I'm in Portland, so we heard of the environment two years before everyone else. That actually is oddly the theme of this Whoops. <laughs> kind of. Because the next question I had written in my script is, have you ever heard of the Pacific Northwest? I have, yeah. I, I know of it and its works. I'm a fan. <laughs> How about the Earth Liberation Front? I don't know. Because I feel <sighs> like when I was growing up, they were all kinds of environmentalist groups, but they all mm-hmm. kind of blurred together in my little brain. So I honestly can't tell you. Fair enough. I don't know how uh, how much you tell the public. Where, where did where did you grow up? You don't have to answer this. Oh yeah, well I grew up outside Portland. Okay, so in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, in the Northwest, in the in the Portland. I definitely call the Portland area home and Oregon in general. And then of course, if you're in Portland, then like we claim uh, Southern Washington as kind of ours. Sorry, Washington. But you get to come over here to avoid sales tax, so it's nice. And so, you know, to me, an iconic Northwesterner is famous for doing something that was dangerous to themselves. And so my favorite is Harry Truman, the old man who refused to evacuate because of Mount St. Helens blowing up and, you know, apparently died in the blast like he wanted. (laughs) It was his choice. Mm hmm. Well, that's sort of related to what we're going to talk about. It's definitely about people right. in the Pacific Northwest deciding to make some decisions that in some ways didn't go well for them and in some ways... But did we say they were going to? <laughs> yeah, exactly. They didn't really make the claim that they were getting out of it unscathed. Magpie, am I right that maybe Sarah might know them better by their nickname, the Elves? Maybe. It's like familiar, but in yeah. the sense of like, I I feel like, you know, if you go to the country fair a few times, then like you're you overlap with people who have more serious thoughts than let's eat mushrooms in the woods. Um, There is a non zero (laughs) chance. This is a very high chance that many of the uh, convicted terrorists we're going to uh, talk about today were at the country, Oregon country fair at some point or another. Amazing. Because today we are going to talk about a bunch of eco anarchists, punks and hippies who in the 90s and into the early aughts caused millions of dollars in damages to earth-destroying machinery, Mm. all without killing or injuring anyone. They were branded as terrorists. They were hunted for years. One of them is still being hunted today. 
their movement, or at least the, you know, the specifically named Earth Liberation Front, fizzled out, and their tactics remained divisive. I have no doubt that there, if there are people around to write history books 100 years from now, they'll be seen pretty clearly as heroes. Mm-hmm. Not as like the John Brown of the environment, because they didn't actually spark anything. <laughs> That's not true. They sparked some very specific things. <laughs> Quite a lot of things. But uh, I see I see what you did there. <laughs> yeah, because fire. Yeah, totally. Yeah. They are real flawed heroes. Their actions may or may not have been strategic. A bunch of them regret the choices that they made. However, a lot of what we have about them regretting the choices they made are them talking to judges who are deciding how many years they should send in prison. Hmm. And I have a feeling people are more sorry for their crimes when someone is holding a gun to their head. Sure. But they showed that some people are willing to go pretty fucking far in order to save the world from boiling. And we're going to talk about them. I'm excited. And don't worry. We're going to start with the French Revolution. Why not? Why not? I'm always saying that. Honey, can we have the French Revolution? Let's just stop. It's on the way home. We have a French Revolution at home. (laughs) And then the French Revolution at home is just guillotine (laughs) earrings that some hipster is wearing. So... Not because the French Revolution was so great, does so many things start with the French Revolution, but because Europe colonized the world, so all of their random ideas have outsized impacts. But we're going to start with a mathematician who served on the Revolutionary Committee in his neighborhood during the Revolution and uh, faced the same thing that many of the revolutionaries did, which was that he immediately almost got guillotined himself. His name was Jean-Baptiste Joseph Frier. He is not super important to this story. But I like drawing red yarn across a conspiracy board. That's basically my job. And he ties into the French Revolution, which means after helping bring democratic ideals to the West, he, you know, was arrested twice by the revolution, was going to get guillotined. But he didn't. Instead, he did a lot of science. Like he writes papers with names like on the propagation of heat in solid bodies. And this is not mm. the name of art, art porn. <laughs> to my knowledge, if someone makes it. It's still available. Yeah. He did something really important to our story. In 1824, he was like, hey, everyone, I did an awful lot of math, and the Earth should be way colder than it is based on how far away it is from the sun. Something is insulating us. Wow. Yeah. So, he's a 19th century scientist, So he gets obsessed with blankets and insulation, and he wraps himself in a blanket all the time for the rest of his life. Um, That's what I want to do for different reasons. Well, here's the reason to be careful with Cozy Core. He Mm. tripped on his blanket, fell down the stairs, and died. Oh, oh boy. You got to take the blanket off sometimes, but I appreciate the dedication. Yeah. There is a literal and metaphorical lesson here. Wait, I didn't know that was a thing. I don't like that. (laughs) Which is why we should destroy stairs. No other lesson could be learned from this. No. Before he died, I just like going into the personal lives of these men because it's never what people talk about. He never married. He wrote a detailed description of how handsome and in love he was with a certain male doctor. Mm -hmm. So, of course, the internet is like, well, he was never married and he made friends with a lot of women. So he was a womanizer. Mm Hmm. Because straight men love to hang out with women. Yeah. Mm. 
there's the rare ones that do, and then half of us come out as trans. (laughs) So, the next scientist in this chain of, oh shit, global warming is actually happening, which we all figured out in the 19th century, and it took until the Mm. 21st century before even people would admit it. Anyway, was a woman named Eunice Newton Foote. And no one listened to her because her last name was Foote. No, just kidding. It was because she was a woman. (laughs) She was also politically involved. Global warming has always been a woke conspiracy. Mm -hmm. In this case, she was American and she was in the 19th century and she was a woman. She was a white woman. So she was involved in all the U.S. stuff at the style at the time. She was a fierce abolitionist. She was into getting women some basic rights. And while we're at it, no one should be allowed to drink alcohol anymore. Mm. Two out of three. You know, yeah, I'll take a partial win. Yeah. I'll probably never directly cover the temperance movement on this podcast because mm. it um, is not cool people did cool stuff, but it ties into it all. Like there's all this mm-hmm. stuff that around the turn of the century, like eugenics and temperance that were like not the right wing issues that you would picture them as today. Mm-hmm. Anyway. She married a feminist man, and since she was a woman, and her science was like amateur, right? Because she was a woman. Everything she patented, she had to patent under her husband's name because women didn't have enough legal rights to sue over patents. She discovered the insulating properties of CO2. Not in 1956. She is not a lich or a vampire, to my knowledge. In 1856, despite what Margaret wrote in her script, in 1856, she presented her theory that, quote, an atmosphere of gas would give to our Earth a high temperature, and if, as some suppose, at one period in its history, the air had mixed with it a larger proportion than at present, an increased temperature from its own action, as well as from increased weight, must necessarily have resulted. So we've definitely had time to prepare. Yeah. (laughs) Embarrassing. This is, I mean, they knew that CO2 warmed the atmosphere before we started putting CO2 into the atmosphere at scale with the industrial <laughs> society. Well, when you put it that way, and to quote Jack Nicholson in The Shining, you've had your whole fucking life to think things over. What good's a few more minutes going to do you now? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, that's, that is what's going to happen. So she had this theory, and she went to go present this theory, but I'm just kidding. She didn't present her theory. She had to have a male friend present her theory, because women did not present such things. She had to put a bunch of dachshunds in a three-piece suit and hope for the best. Yeah. And the man who did present it started off by saying, science was of no country and no sex. So the men in her life aren't, like, capitalizing off of her. They're actually supporting Mm -hmm. her, and they're really fucking annoyed about all this, too. Good for them. Yeah. However, they're hanging out and friends with a woman, so clearly, woman. well, one of them's married to her, so I guess he's, he's probably so, you know. womanizing her. <laughs> no, isn't womanize, like, so, womanize is, it sounds like a term like martinize or simonize, like, you know, just a quick and easy process for turning someone into a woman. <laughs> that would be ideal. <laughs> Let's push for it, yeah. Yeah, one hour womanizing. Yeah. The womanizer, the womanizer store. Or, you know, it's free. All these horrible misogynist men go there thinking that something different's going to happen yeah. than what does. Uh, now there's an 80s comedy. Okay, so this is like one of those pieces of news where you're like, wow, humans are capable of both so much and so little. Like we discovered CO2 yeah. would be a problem before we started doing the problem. Yeah. <sighs> <sighs> 
<laughs> Next up is Vante Arrhenius, who is a Swedish chemist. He was an early birth control advocate, tying into that other problematic movement, eugenics. Mm-hmm. But in 1896, he was the first person to actually calculate global warming based on human-caused CO2 emissions. This is, you know, mm-hmm. a couple decades into the CO2 emissions, and he's like, mm-hmm. oh, let's math this out. And uh, he put it together. He was also kind of a dick. He married one of his former pupils, which is essentially never a good look. And then he wound up on the Nobel Prize Committee, and he just, like, played favorites, and he got all of his friends' Nobel Prizes, and all of his enemies like, didn't get them. <laughs> but... He calculated global warming. Flawed people do real interesting things. That should actually yeah. be the title of this show. That can be your spinoff TV series. <laughs> yes, please give me the TV series. By the 1950s, you now get a Canadian this time. So we got four different countries represented in this particular quick overview of people who mm. called this a long time ago. Mm. And his name is Gilbert Plass. And he Very started Canadian making- name. <laughs> Oh, yeah, totally. Also, okay, now to picture this man. This man is the ultimate, like, 50s stereotype man. He is a stamp collector. He is a classical music DJ. And he worked on the Manhattan Project. What? Wow. So this guy is, like, played by David Strathairn in the biopic. I don't know who that is. I hope. He's uh, Mr. Goodnight and Good Luck. God, I really sound like my mom these days. Where you just like, instead of the person's name, you just grope for like the name of the thing you can first think of them being in. So instead of Helen Hunt, you just call her Matt about you. Yeah, Yeah. Magpie Magpie usually doesn't get most references. Nice. I'm thinking of of like, David Strathairn, I hope people agree with me, is like... Looking him up. The archetypal, handsome, long-suffering, thin-lipped, mid-century man. He also played Mr. Lowenstein in A League of Their Own. Oh yeah, none no, of this okay. is relevant. <laughs> okay, but I've 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 seen the League of Their Own, and I've now looked him up. Yes, this mm-hmm. man did should play him in the Did we also see that in theaters? Yeah, we did Gosh, at the Academy. We're just we've had a we've had a good year. We've done it. Portland is a second-rate city in many ways, but we're a first-rate, second-run movie city. I'll have you all know. Mm-hmm. I did see a lot of good movies at the cheap theaters there. But okay, so we have we have a, a serious man, if you will. <laughs> yeah. He starts making predictions about climate change that are more or less accurate now. 70 mm. years ago, Good Lord. there was someone doing the math that more or less lines up. So we've known about human-caused climate change for a long, long time. Yeah. Next, we're going to talk about the first ELF. People talk about the ELF, and they're usually talking about the main ELF, the Earth Liberation Front. But there was a different group of guerrilla, eco-radical people. Probably just one guy, but it had a group name. This ELF was called the Environmental Life Force. Hmm. This is probably one man who did a few actions in 1977 in California and Oregon. His name is John Hanna. He was a, I don't know if he's still alive, but he was alive as of 2008 was the last Hmm. interview I read with him. He was an anti-war vet in the 60s. He'd gotten out of the military before the Vietnam War. And then he like went off to school to study marine biology and do environmental stuff. But then he got caught up in the anti-war movement and dropped out of school. He was in Students for a Democratic Society, but it wasn't radical enough for him. So he had this whole elaborate plan where he was going to go to Thailand to hijack a B-52 bomber and then like protest the war by 
blowing it up, not with people in it, but like mm. landing it and then blowing it up. Mm. Um, Pretty cool. And then he didn't do it because he like went to Thailand and was like starting to figure it out. And then he was like, oh, I'm, I can't do this by myself. And he went home. <laughs> Later, our second tie into the Manhattan Project, opposite side of it, he was a civilian deckhand on a ship that brought medical survey teams out to the Marshall Islands, which is where all the atomic bombs were getting, had been tested, right? And for decades yeah. afterwards, they would go and use humans as guinea pigs to see what had happened to the people who had been exposed to all this horrible mm. fucking mass death that the U.S. had done. Mm-hmm. If you want to know more about the Marshall Islands, I'm just going to plug James Stout's series on It Could Happen Here that mm. he did on the Marshall Islands. Check that out. It is real good, and it's where everything I know about the Marshall Islands comes from. Yeah. So he goes out there, and he sees firsthand how everyone has been treated like human guinea pigs. And he's like, man, this is not increasing my theory about the U.S. government and capitalism and it being good. In 1977, he's living in an agricultural area in California. I think he's living, like, later he's in Santa Cruz, but I think he's rural, rural at this point. And his girlfriend is disabled. She'd been exposed to pesticides while working at a cannery. Hmm. One day, he's driving home and his crop duster plane flies overhead and he just gets a face full of pesticides before he can roll up the window. Hmm. And he's recently been reading Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring, and another book from a local professor about pesticides. He writes up a report of the incident for the agricultural commissioner and nothing came of it. So he's like... Yeah, all right, I'm going to do something about this. In 1977, he took the first action as the ELF. This one has nothing, whatever, I'll just... He used an air gun to shoot out the windows of a vacation home of a county supervisor. Hmm. And he did this because, quote, the action was in retaliation for the jailhouse death of Larry Williams, a young black inmate. He went into diabetic shock and died for lack of an insulin shot. Hmm. The... County supervisor whose windows he shot out, the vacation home of, later went on to be known a little bit more as uh, Diane Feinstein, (laughs) (laughs) who was mayor of San Francisco. (laughs) Yeah. And then U.S. senator and paved the way for the antediluvian rule of the country. Well, great timing. (laughs) I don't usually expect to get a Feinstein drop in uh, this podcast. Feinstein. That's, you can tell, because I didn't even know how to pronounce her name. (laughs) But Uh, what I also don't know how to pronounce are the names of all of our advertisers, because they're randomly generated. And if you have problems (laughs) with them, it's because capitalism is a a nightmare machine that we're all trapped inside of, and the machine is bleeding to death. Help me. (laughs) Here's some ads. (laughs) Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as infinity presents a new chapter in luxury the premiere of the all-new 2025 infinity qx80 join us march 20th live from the edge at hudson yards in new york city featuring an unforgettable performance by grammy and academy award-winning singer songwriter and composer john batiste the all-new infinity qx80 is unlike any luxury suv you've ever seen Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, 
Only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Are you ready to share some joy and celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's has partnered with iHeart for Women Take the Mic, treating you to the most uplifting and empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So grab a handful of that creamy deliciousness, kick back and spread some positivity into the world from smashing glass ceilings to breaking records in sports on stages and at the box office. Women are crushing it in every way imaginable. And with peanut butter M&Ms by your side, relax and keep listening to women take the mic podcasts as you dance your way through inspiring stories, share laughs and savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&Ms and the unstoppable force of women. Happy International Women's Day. With AT&T in-car Wi-Fi, elevate your adventure by transforming your vehicle into a reliable Wi-Fi hotspot. Connect up to 10 devices up to 50 feet away from your vehicle, making it ideal for camping and road trips. Don't miss out on the fun. Embark on your next adventure today. Visit att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi to check if you're eligible for a free trial. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. And we're back. And so the ELF, the Environmental Life Force, took credit for that attack on uh, Feinstein's... Feinstein? 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 She's dead. Yeah, whatever. (laughs) Then, on May 1st, he tried to set fire to seven crop dusters at a local airport, which makes Mm. sense. They'd just been dousing him with poison. Fair enough. He's real careful to make sure that no one's hurt. He sets the timers to go off at 2 a.m. The napalm is constructed carefully not to spread the fire, and I will not be talking about how he did that. Thank you. Uh, That's going to come up a couple times, how I am not talking about some of this shit. We'll talk about why, because people get arrested for talking about it, which is fucked up. Anyway. And then he waits around the crime scene, ready to intercept anyone who might show up who could accidentally get hurt. It's like an airport in the middle of nowhere, but he's like, Mm. not taking any Mm. chances. He's like, Uh. I will go down before anyone gets hurt from my actions. Huh. I love that. Yeah. He also didn't make the firebombs right. The blasting caps go off, but not the napalm. And he pretty much Mm. just scuffed the paint on the planes. Mm. He writes this communique. Sorry, the ELF writes this communique. He, again, almost certainly just him, but Mm -hmm. people want to have their things that they say. He wants to say that there's a whole bunch of them. So that's great. (laughs) And he, in the communique, he's like listing off alternatives to pesticides. Then... He drove up to Oregon and bombed a paper company office in Oregon City. Fair enough. On August 1st. And the reason he did this, they owned a tree farm that sprayed herbicides and the herbicides were leaching into streams and killing salmon and shit. So Mm -hmm. locals had chained themselves to trees to try and stop the paper company, right? So a helicopter sprayed all the activists with herbicide. Jesus. So John Hanna drove up there and set a small pipe bomb at their offices he was really unexcited about people being sprayed with chemicals. Again, no one was hurt. In this case, he actually writes about how he was like, he wasn't even like, the later ELF is trying to maximize economic damage. He's just trying to get attention, like draw attention Mm. to things. So it's like Mm. a small pipe bomb that like blows out a window. Mm. 
Then, on November 22nd, 1977, the ATF and local SWAT arrested him in his house in Santa Cruz because they traced the copy machine that the communiques had been copied on. And basically, yeah, like there's like ways that copy machines like and printers actually leave Hmm. specific like traceable information. Mm -hmm. And so they figured out where they were being printed off at, went to the place and was like, hey, any of your employees have a problem with the environment and how it's been treated. And like his girlfriend worked there. Oh, shit. Yeah. So he told them he'd acted alone. And then he says in interviews, like as late as 2008, he's like, look, there's no statute of limitations on terrorism. So I'm going to continue to tell you that I acted alone, which is his like wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Mm. Maybe I didn't act alone. I think he worked alone. Again, whatever, not a problem. (laughs) But he got sentenced to five years in prison. After a bit, he was out on probation. Mm. He genuinely sees what he did as counterproductive. This isn't a like, I told the judge, hey, bud, I'm mm. sorry. Wish I hadn't done it. If, I could go, if only I could take back, take it back, turn back time, that song, you know. Da, da, da. Anyway. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons he changed his mind is because he talked with one of the activists who'd been sprayed with herbicide up in Oregon. Mm. And that person told him that after the bombing, the activists lost all credibility and the campaign fell apart. Mm. He became a strong believer in strict nonviolence. Mm-hmm. He also, and I think this strains credulity, he claims that he knew the founder of the next incarnation of the ELF over in the UK and that he tried to talk the person out of it. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about that next incarnation about 15 yeah. years later. This is the main one we're going to discuss this week. The actual ELF, the one with more than one person in it, may or may not have gotten inspiration from the environmental life force. But I can point to two very specific places it absolutely did come from. First, Earth First. You ever heard of Earth First? Mm. Yeah, I do. That's the group that I remember most being active or kind of knowing about tangentially in the mid-2000s when I was growing up. Yeah, I did Earth First organizing in Portland in the mid-2000s while you were growing up. Yeah. Yep. Earth First, which I've, whatever, I'm pretty public about that. They're an above ground organization. Mm-hmm. I talked about them a bunch. If people want to hear me talk more about Earth First, I talk about them in my episode about Judy Berry, who was an anarchist organizer who was bombed probably by the feds in the year 1990. Mm-hmm. I'm going to rudely split Earth First into two parts of its history mm-hmm. the original and then what it's been for most of its existence since. The first version, the early years of Earth First, had the unofficial slogan, Rednecks for Wilderness. They were one organization in which its members did both nonviolent civil disobedience and also a whole bunch of sabotage. They called it monkey wrenching. Mm. And this is named after a book by some people's problematic fave. Yeah. Probably we'll do an episode about the monkey wrenchers at some point. Two tensions started cropping up within Earth First. First, there was this tension between the, uh, quote, tofu-eating anarchists who were also mostly actually rural and rednecks, but they were like more feminist, anti-authoritarian and less into the American flag. Hmm. And the, some, of the, some of, but not all of the founders who were like, the American flag is our symbol. We are rednecks, just like Edward Abbey. We think it's cool to throw beer cans out the window while we're fighting for the environment. Um, you know, whatever. 
I have very low opinions of Edward Abbey. Someone, mm. I feel very bad. One of my friends is like, you're going to do an episode on Edward Abbey? And I'm like, I am not. <laughs> <laughs> he uh, was a xenophobe who believed in closed borders and very nimby, whatever, anyway. Yeah, the libertarian river that runs through all this is, you know, there there are many rapids. Yeah, totally, <laughs> totally. So in the end, the tofu-eating anarchists won and the American flag waivers left. This is, <laughs> many of the founders made this transition to this new version of the group or were always the tofu-eating anarchists. And when I've talked with people who are from that period, they say that there's, these divisions are like kind of overblown and mm. like really like, like one of the main histories of Earth First was written a while ago and it was written by a journalist who very, very much was on the side of one of the original like Redneck for Wilderness guys. And mm. so like it colors a lot of the media narrative where people are looking for a split mm. that wasn't whatever anyway. Mm-hmm. There's less bad blood than people say. But there's another tension that could not last in an organization. The tension of having an above-ground organization like Earth First, they don't have a membership roster and is decentralized, but they have meetings and they have gatherings and they like do things in public and they chain themselves to things and shit, right? If you're doing that, you can't be the same group that burns things at night. Mm-hmm. So you have this tension between above-ground illegalism, like tree-sitting and road blockades, and underground illegalism like tree Mm. spiking and arson and, Mm -hmm. you know, destroying bulldozers and stuff. The New Earth First didn't condemn the underground stuff. They just didn't do it. It was separate. Lots of imprisoned arsonists came out of Earth First ranks, and Earth First and related organizations ran and run legal support campaigns for these prisoners. But it was distinct from Earth First itself. And this isn't like wink, wink, nudge, nudge, hand waving. It's, Mm -hmm. It's true. I was involved in Earth First a fair amount and I never knew whenever people would get caught for felony stuff I'd be like holy shit really you know because <laughs> mm-hmm. it was separate mm-hmm. Earth First is still around its slogan is no compromise in defense of the earth I like them that has probably come across and then there's one or another origin point where the Earth Liberation Front gets its name which is not I don't know why I'm like picking a fight with this old guy who's probably whatever. They didn't get their name from the whatever, the old one. They got it from the Animal Liberation Front. Mm. You ever heard of the Animal Liberation Front? Yes, but weirdly only through a T.C. Boyle story, which is an embarrassing way to learn about the world. Because it's about, I feel like so many of his stories were just like, I met a hot woman who was doing something strange. And it's about like (laughs) dating an ALF activist (laughs) (laughs) cool wait if you think of the story where you let me know what it is i really like tracing representation of uh this type of group in fiction it's a short story called uh carnal knowledge okay okay that perfect sounds dirty old man but you know yeah oh yeah carnal knowledge it does it does it does Also, the name of the movie where Jack Nicholson played a college student when he was like 39 years old, but that's a separate issue. (laughs) Oh, God. Yeah. So the Animal Liberation Front. My disclaimer here, I have been vegan for long enough that my veganism is old enough to drink at bars. (laughs) 
I am overall supportive of the animal liberation front and a lot of its things, but my support is not without caveats in this. And mm. specifically, I have a lot of issues with the way that vegan activism is done. I, um, mm. I don't believe eating animals is inherently morally wrong. And I don't have an issue with people who hunt for food. And I support indigenous fishing and hunting rights in particular. Mm-hmm. I think that a lot of animal rights activism is too black and white. And I, I, have, I have issues with a lot of it. That said... When people rescue animals and give them new homes and care for them, I am happy. Mm -hmm. At the core of it, that is what the Animal Liberation Front does. At the core of it is, you know, they go into places where they believe animals are being mistreated and they take those animals out and they find them sanctuary. Mm. I will probably not do an ALF episode. Maybe one day. I don't know. I'm going to speed run them really quick. Mm. In the 19th century in England, eh, eh, speed run, I'm going back to the 19th it. century. <laughs> you had all of these teach kids to be nice to animals organizations called Bands of Mercy, hmm. which is a cool name. They stuck around for a while and then they petered out. Then in 1963, you have the Hunt Saboteurs Association that forms in England. They mm. would go around and like fuck up stag hound hunting events, which is not where people hunt stag hounds, that's when they use stag hounds to hunt. Stags. I have no idea that that was a thing people did. It does seem like less cartoonishly scary and British than British. fox hunting, but yeah, wow. Ugh. Yeah. It's like, you know, you're always rooting for whatever king to get gored when this happens. Oh, but yeah. It happens so rarely. <laughs> so volunteers would start showing up in the 60s and blow hunting horns and put down false scents and shit to disrupt the hunts. Some of the hunt saboteurs took up the name Band of Mercy mm. uh, and started slashing hunters' tires and breaking windows. Mm. And again, whatever. We're not talking about like the deer hunter in Kentucky. We are talking about mm-hmm. a class-based thing in England. In 1973, they burned down a pharmaceutical research laboratory, the Band of Mercy. In 1974, they burned down some boats that were seal hunting. Then they liberated six guinea pigs, the first direct animal liberation of the movement. Wow. And then something that happened that I think is really important, which gets at the core of the strategic complexity of this kind of action, happened. The hunt saboteurs were like, hey, these guys ain't us about Band of Mercy. Hmm. We blow horns and stuff. We don't slash tires. That's a step too far. We also don't, I mean, whatever. They went from slashing tires to burning things down. But Mm -hmm. They also offered a reward to anyone who ratted out the Band of Mercy, Hmm. which is a classic, we agree with your morals but not your tactics, combined with the classic, and we'll sell you out to the system we claim to hate in order to curry favor from that system. Mm -hmm. In 1976, some arrested Band of Mercy folks got out of prison and changed the name to the Animal Liberation Front, Mm -hmm. uh, which is certainly more hardcore, but Band of Mercy is a pretty good name. Just, Just saying. It's fucking fantastic. And with the Animal Liberation Front, I really am stuck on the fact that they only needed two more words and then they could have been Alfie. <laughs> but now they're a, an alien that eats cats. Yeah, that's good too. <laughs> God, wait. Alf must have come after this. Alf is 80s, right? Right. So Was Alf named after the animal? I certainly hope so. <laughs> yeah. I'm just going to say yes. Absolutely. It's headcanon. Yeah. 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 It's a complicated show, you know? Yeah. 
I watched it as a kid and have not thought about it since. But I had an Alf skateboard when I was in middle school. Oh, nice. And it was a, he, he was skateboarding on the skateboard. Oh, so it was a was, recursive was skateboard. Space. Yeah. I always liked it when also you would have as a kid, like a Spider-Man costume. And then there would be a graphic of Spider-Man on the chest. And as a kid, I was like, this completely takes me out of it. What kind of a superhero would wear a smaller image of themselves on their own clothes? <laughs> and yet here you are wearing a sweater with your face on it. <laughs> Does that sweater have your face on it? No, but it has a whale with a, a neutral expression. This is for the, the white whale bookstore in Pittsburgh. Aww. And their mascot is a little whale who's just happy to be here, I like to think. For the record, I did not know it was on the shirt before I said the joke that yeah. I made. <laughs> I like, but I mean, oh. like I, I on my in on my best days, I feel like I'm just a whale, just you know, swimming around, sifting out tons of krill with my baleen. <laughs> well, now I feel bad because actually one of the actions that didn't get claimed by the ALF, but was a very ALFy action, uh, in the the first one that happened in the U.S., I think was um, a group of people who freed some whales in a, a free willy cool. kind of way. Yeah. But, well, the 90s in the Northwest were also a big yeah. time for whales. What with, uh, yeah, Keiko. I would say, in a way, Sarah, do you not blow us all out of the water? <laughs> <laughs> Honey! <laughs> Honey! <laughs> so, the ALF, when they form, they laid out a structure that went on to define what this sort of leaderless resistance looks like. There's no central registry. There's no mm. leadership. Anyone who adheres to the basic guidelines can call themselves ALF. Mm. One of those central tenets is you have to adhere to that all precautions must be in place to protect human and non-human animal life. Mm-hmm. Above ground groups started to form to support underground activists, like they had a press office and magazines and websites and legal support funds and all that shit. And... They set about gluing locks, freeing animals, burning shit, slashing tires, spray painting, running targeted and focused activist campaigns to shut down vivisectors. And within a few years, it hit the U.S. Hmm. And so the ELF came out of the ALF and it came out of Earth first. And I got one more foundation to describe that is as much of a, a bedrock as these ads are the bedrock of being able to pay people a living wage to read history books about arsonists. Here's ads. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City Featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Are you ready to share some joy and celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's has partnered with iHeart for Women Take the Mic 
treating you to the most uplifting and empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&Ms, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So grab a handful of that creamy deliciousness, kick back and spread some positivity into the world from smashing glass ceilings to breaking records in sports on stages and at the box office. Women are crushing it in every way imaginable. And with peanut butter M&Ms by your side, relax and keep listening to women take the mic podcasts as you dance your way through inspiring stories, share laughs and savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&Ms and the unstoppable force of women. Happy International Women's Day. Stay connected and never miss a beat with AT&T. Our reliable network covers more roads than any other carrier, ensuring you're always in the loop. Whether it's tournament upsets, buzzer beaters, or social media buzz, stay up to date. Don't let the action pass you by. Check if you're eligible for a free trial of in-car Wi-Fi at att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi. And keep the madness going. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. And we're back, and we spent our ad time talking about the hot blacksmith in the classic film, A Knight's Tale. (laughs) We've used our time really well, I think. When we look back on the heyday of the Earth Liberation Front, it's easy to see it in the context of global warming. And they, and that, you know, that's how I started the episode. I clearly am framing it that way. And the participants did see it as related to global warming, but... At the time, people were something talking about something more localized, the destruction of old-growth forests and intact ecosystems. Mm. Before I moved out west and fell in with the forest defenders, I'd never really seen a clear cut. Um, mm. You live out west. I'm, you know, you've gone out and seen the clear cuts all around. Yeah. Yeah. They look like shaved patches on the mountains. You know, they look like a bad punk haircut. Less than 4% of the original forest of the United States is left. Mm. Everywhere colonizers have gone, they have left this like absolute nightmare in its wake. I grew up on the East Coast. I imagine that logging was done sustainably because that's what I was told. I was told two trees are planted for every tree cut down. And actually, on one of the documentaries that I watched were on this, I think it was a, If a Tree Falls, I think that was the one. As a timber executive who's like, six trees are planted for every tree we cut down. Mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. we all used to get that commercial yeah mm-hmm. it doesn't even yeah. how how would you imagine that that would work then there'd be too many right? trees in the area like yeah they're like carrots yeah <laughs> i mean that's what they do is that they yeah. they replant monocultures and then and then everywhere would have the same lovely infrastructure we have in portland <laughs> yeah <laughs> by that do you mean none sophie <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps. And it's great because because now, you know, what's nice about Portland is that despite the fact that we're decimating the forest all around us, there are still enough old trees to crush people's houses all the time. Yeah, which is yep. pretty impressive. You yeah, it's, it's something. It's <laughs> nice that global warming can use the few remaining trees to crush people's houses to who kill are people. not yeah. the people who actually did anything. Is, was that one that fell on the cop car? Yeah. yeah, that was a good one. That was an ally. That was a good tree. <laughs> 
When I was a kid, I imagined that loggers went into forests and cut like one tree out of 50 so that the forest stayed intact. That they were like, oh, well, we want there to be a forest. Yeah, you know? me too. Yeah, and they go timber and they look really hot while they do it. They do. And they have those heels on the boots. Mm-hmm. They um, sleep all day. They work all night. They hang around in bars. Yeah. yeah. So that, they just actually clear cut acre after acre. And sometimes they say we're not clear cutting. It's selective cuts after they like would ban clear cutting in certain areas. And if you go out to these selective cuts, it is exactly the same as going out to a clear cut. Only there's two trees per acre or something like that. And those trees, if you spend enough time out in the woods, those trees blow over because those trees grew up in a forest with trees around to block the wind. Mm -hmm. So speaking of trees falling on people's houses, the National Forest Service is not in the business of protecting forests. That is not its job. I'm not even trying to slander it here. It is in the Department of Agriculture. It is hmm. the National Forest Service, with because of the timber sale program, is largely a big tree farm sold off to various timber companies, often at hmm. a loss to the taxpayers because you can actually get a lot more money out of intact forests through recreation and things like that. And very hmm. little of our timber needs come from the national, whatever. Anyway, it's hmm. like I was in Earth First for a while as it come across. So... The Willamette National Forest is one of the most beautiful places in the world. In 1991, some arsonists, not the good kind, started a 9,000-acre forest fire in the Cordon Patch roadless area in the forest, which Mm. was a habitat reserve for the northern spotted owl. Mm. Basically, there was this culture war thing happening in the late 80s, early 90s about the spotted owl where people were like, we want to cut down everything. And people were like, we'd rather you didn't. And they were like, give us a good reason. And we were like, uh, spotted owl nest there. <laughs> and then the courts were like, okay. And then the culture war was like, well, then we hate the spotted owl. Fuck the spotted God. owl. It's woke. I like vaguely remember that from like my earliest flickerings of consciousness that like conservatives loved to make weird jokes about the spotted owl. And I was like, I don't get it. Yeah. <laughs> They've never changed. <laughs> so as soon as this place this in the Corn Patch Roadless area was declared a spotted owl sanctuary someone burned it mm-hmm. the forest service was like sweet the trees burned we can sell them now in what's called a salvage timber sale which is wow. based on this entirely incorrect assumption that a burned forest is not a healthy forest and mm-hmm. uh, can it's good to then take all the biomass out of it That's very depressing, but I also want to make my joke that they had Mm -hmm. a fire sale. Ah, they did have a fire sale. (sighs) Sorry. It's okay. I would bet a decent sum of money that the fire was started for the purpose of turning it into a salvage sale. Light it and log it was the slogan attributed to the timber companies. One of the things that happens a lot in logging is that the fines for, like for example, one timber sale that I worked on, when they accidentally, quote unquote, cut an old growth tree outside of the like area that they were supposed to cut, they would get fined a couple thousand dollars on a tree that they sold for tens of thousands of dollars. Yeah. So God. there's no, and there's no criminal punishment, right? So they just do it. <laughs> well, it's like when you see those signs that are like, fine for striking and killing a highway worker, $7,500. And there have to be people who see that and are like, all right. Yeah, totally. So the arsonist who started that 9,000-acre fire was never caught. Mm. I am not sure the fire was ever really investigated seriously. 
Later in this story, you're going to see like a teenager go to prison for eight years for doing $5,000 worth of damage to a McDonald's. 300 FBI agents working on a case to bring down one cell of the Earth Liberation Front. I'm sure they had nothing better to do. But 9,000 acres of public land, old growth forest, totally irreplaceable. Now, who cares? Whatever. Mm-hmm. So this timber sale, the salvage timber sale, set off huge protests. There was a five-year campaign from 91 to 95, which isn't five years, it's four years, but whatever. A burned forest is still a valuable ecosystem. And in the West, in particular, forests are often fire ecologies designed to survive and often thrive from burns. You know, I I worked one salvage timber sale that we were trying to stop where the pine cones don't open unless there's a fire. You know, the new seeds like literally can't be planted until the fire goes through. That said, the kinds of fires that these are a different, different deal. But if you don't clear cut a burned forest and remove all the biomass and all the habitat, these forests can recover. And activists knew that, and they started leading hikes through the burn area to talk about fire ecology. In early 1995, they won in court, saying that it shouldn't be logged. But then, a Republican Congress passed the Salvage Logging Rider in 1995. And this basically, like, it literally had to go through Congress to say, no, we just want to cut everything we can in this one particular area, basically. Basically, this rider to a a different bill said for the next year, any burned forest can be cut without any environmental review. But normally, if you want to cut public lands, you have to at least go through an environmental review process, which is where activists, the the glamorous stuff is the tree sitting and the road blockades, but the thing that actually saves the forest are the lawyers fighting that while the blockaders prevent it from being cut while the court is figuring it out. Whatever. The reason this was a rider, this bill, was because it was attached to a different bill. In this case, these fucking ghouls attached it to a bill giving money to Oklahoma City bombing victims. Oh, my God. Uh, See, every time we're nostalgic for the 90s, it's like... (laughs) Yeah, nothing changes. (laughs) Yeah. The fashions just, you know, waver slightly, but that's about it. Yeah, but we're back. We're back to it again already. Right. Yeah. yeah actually, we're, a, I think we've already little, moved on. We're in past a little it, figure eight. Yeah, yeah. God knows. I think we're doing 2003 now, which is. Ugh. <laughs> if I dress like 2003, no one would come near me. <laughs> I got to get a newsboy cap if we're going to do my personal 2003, which Sophie is already nice. gravitating towards. So we can. Sophie, we're going to be newsies this year. Okay. That is a good style. Yeah. I am all about the. Nobody was saying it 20 years ago, but maybe it's finally time. (laughs) (laughs) No, we should. I was saying I was saying to my sister-in-law the other day, I was like, I feel no emotional attachment to my wardrobe. I'm like, it doesn't feel like me anymore. So maybe it's because it's not Newsies enough. Maybe your Newsies era. Yeah, it's it's, I I identify so deeply with the episode of Seinfeld where Jerry and Elaine are at a funeral and mm -hmm. Elaine's like, I hate all my clothes. (laughs) Yeah. It's like sometimes when you're at a funeral, that's the saddest thing you can think about. Yeah. Anyway. All right. We're all going to get newsboy caps. Yeah. And then go out and do redacted. Yeah. I so, love to be redacted. <laughs> the timber companies are like, let's fucking go. Who cares if we kill the planet? We'll be able to buy new trucks. <laughs> oh. And this 
this massive protest movement, it doesn't go away just because Congress told them that the law wasn't going to work with them anymore. Mm-hmm. It moved to a more sort of desperate direct action movement. Over 600 people got arrested defending various forests in the area that summer. Just massive protests were everywhere. One of the main groups involved was a new group called Cascadia Forest Defenders. Mm-hmm. And it's not Earth First, but it's not not Earth First. The direct action environmental movement is like that, where you'll just, you know, Portland had the Cascadia Forest Alliance, Eugene had the Cascadian Forest Defenders, whatever. And because of all of this, the Forest Service only managed to sell a fifth of the billion board feet of timber that they'd hoped out of Mm. the salvage rider um, because lawsuits and activists kept tangling everything up. And there was this particular 14-acre sale, Warner Creek, and it suddenly opened for logging. So a couple activists grab their toothbrushes and sleeping bags and run up the hill. And they just stay there. And then they keep staying there for almost a year, 343 days. On, all through the winter, under eight feet of snow. And along the way, hundreds of people, total of 500 to 1,000 people, come to this encampment. Hmm. They rip up the road with pickaxes, which is... They build 15-foot-deep, 10-foot-wide trenches in the road. They built a palisade wall like an Wild West town with a drawbridge and an observation tower. <laughs> and they, they buried anchor points in the road to lock themselves to. These are called sleeping dragons, you know, because mm-hmm. you can you just grab a, um, a chain with a carabiner around your wrist and then you, like, run to a hidden point in the road, stick your arm into it, and you can clip into this mm. point, and then they can't take mm-hmm. you out. Hmm. they called it the Cascadia Free State and they made a documentary about it called Pickaxe that's worth watching it was made by the participants and it's all 90s camcorder it's kind of wild it looked like shit when I saw it and then now it probably looks cool and old and people do it on purpose yeah it's an artifact (laughs) yeah two activists went to the federal building in Eugene and went on a hunger strike all to protect this 14 acre timber sale or rather to make a bigger point and draw attention and build a community around this movement. Hmm. The following summer, on August 16th, the Forest Service came in with heavy equipment and arrested seven people and tore the whole thing down. One of the kind of wild things about these encampments is that they rely on, like all this could, anything you can do with a pickaxe over the course of months or a year can be destroyed in a few hours with heavy equipment, you know? Hmm. But the timber sale was canceled, as were a ton of other salvage sales, because everyone in the area, from the hippies to the little old ladies, were fucking mad about it. People kept, like, storming offices. When some folks were arrested, their arraignment was held in secret. And so the activists outside were like, nah, that's not going to happen. Protesters forced their way into the jail and rioted in Eugene. This particular movement, based in Eugene, Oregon, is going to have a worldwide impact. It basically Mm -hmm. brings hippie anti-capitalism into the modern era. It rebirths the U.S. direct action anarchist movement, which later goes on to influence a ton of stuff through the anti-globalization movement and up through Occupy and onward. Wow. Boy, a lot has come out of Eugene. Yeah. And protesters spent a lot of time in these makeshift shelters in the snow, holding off the federal government. And they got to talking. You know, there's like only a couple of them that stick around all winter. Hmm. And they're like, hey, what is necessary and what is ethical and what is strategic? 
how do we stop not just this timber sale, but the death machine of global capitalism? So a ton of people from this group formed the most prolific cell of the Earth Liberation Front, and they met each other there, and they grew close on a road in the middle of nowhere buried under snow. Meanwhile, after a decade of ecotage, Earth First formally splits from the underground action. This is now we're we're playing fast and loose with time here. Now we're back to 1992 in Brighton, England, where a lot of punk stuff comes from. And they were like, all right, if you're doing above ground shit, you're Earth First. If you're doing ecotage, which is their like cool word for sabotage in the name of the Earth, then you're the Earth Liberation Front and good luck to you, but you're not us. Hmm. The Animal Liberation Front had gotten its legs in England, so it makes sense enough that the ELF did too. In April 1992, the Earth Liberation Front made its first attack, or at least the first one with a communique. They attacked a peat company called Fizzins that was destroying peat bogs, which are a non-renewable resource, something that is only just now coming to mainstream attention. Like, you know, people used to always, like, use peat moss a lot in gardening, Right. And people are moving to alternatives because they're like, Mm. oh, peat moss doesn't come back. I had no idea. Yeah. Peat moss doesn't come back. Don't use it. Uh, Coconut something. The thing no one can say. Quar, quar, quar. It's like Creed Bratton trying to remember his job title. Quabity, qual. Yeah. I have no idea what word you're trying to say. Hook is, is it, like coconut, is it the coconut core, thing? right? Yeah. Oh, like yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah. I probably never said it aloud. I've just like I know, I mean, too. I'm afraid to. <laughs> gardening articles, yeah. And I think this is actually an example of the kind of thing that the Earth Liberation Front is doing, is being about 30 years ahead of its time and confronting issues that at the time were like, what? Who cares? And now people are like, oh, we care because we're all about to boil. Uh This magazine called Green Anarchist, not to be confused with the U.S. magazine Green Anarchy, put out this first communique. All our peat bogs must be preserved in their entirety for the sake of the plants, the animals, and our national heritage. Cynically donating small amounts will do no good. The water table will drop and the bogs will dry out and die unless it is preserved fully. And so the ELF spreads across Europe and the rest of the world. Most of the narratives around the Earth Liberation Front collapse the whole movement down to a few people, especially this cell that we're going to talk about, which gets called the family, which is sketchy. If you're ever naming your own group, don't don't name it the family. Yeah. (laughs) And we're going to collapse the narrative down to them a little bit, too, for three reasons. One, it is narratively convenient. Two, we know the most about it. And three, well, because not everyone involved in all these actions has been caught, and there's no statute of limitations on terrorism charges, so I don't really want to dig into some of these things, you know? But fittingly enough, the first recorded ELF action in the U.S. was on Columbus Day, and it was some graffiti about colonization. Mm. 504 years of genocide was spray-painted in one place. ELF was spray-painted in another place. In... Eugene, Oregon, naturally. Perfect. And then, because they hadn't really nailed their security culture yet, for a few days later, all along the I-5 corridor, just in a single direction, gas stations and McDonald's had their glues locked with 504 years of genocide and Earth Liberation Front and fuck corporations and all that jazz. Then, a week or so later, 
the first fire that they're famous for happened. It was 1996. Mm. It's in the forest outside Detroit, Oregon. Mm. The other Detroit, as it's often mm-hmm, referred famously. to. Famously. Yeah. This one has a lake. <laughs> yeah. It's like people are like, which Portland? And you're like, unless you live in Maine, no one's going to ask which Portland you mean. <laughs> uh, truly. Come on, you guys. Like, but it's a capital. And you're like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, in the forest outside Detroit, Oregon, a U.S. Forest Service pickup truck was burned down. An incendiary device was found on the roof of the ranger station, but it never ignited. And just like that, the U.S. Earth Liberation Front kicked off. As for how that went, we'll talk about it on Wednesday. And just like that. Honey. Honey. You don't like my cliffhanger? No, it's an. It, it, you didn't get it. There's the 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 Sex in the City remake is no, called. Is, oh, it's called it's, and just like that. <laughs> I get really excited when I do know pop culture references. No, you did. You did not, not need to know this pop culture reference, but when you said it, it was meant to be. My first thought hearing all this is that these are movements that, because they felt fully formed by the time I was a teenager, I just assumed had been around, kind of forever. And oh yeah, huh? To me, one of the most interesting parts of this is being like, no, this—the beginning of this large-scale movement—we can trace it to an exact point in time and space. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that before. I think I also kind of had this like sense of like, oh, this is just this thing; it's just in the air, and then like, it kind of goes away too, right? It's this like mm-hmm. grand leaderless movement that's been around forever, and it's like it kind of. Did a thing for about 10 years. Yeah. Well, and, and on a more pop cultural level, it's so funny to trace the eras of things that we could focus on as a society. Like the 90s were the, the era of Save the Whales to the extent that I feel like there's, I mean, this is a weird way to track cultural relevancy, but it's what comes to mind. I think there's a compilation of Dilbert cartoons called Shave the Whales so you can see how well-known that phrase was. I read a lot of comic book compilations as a kid. I was not a great uh-huh. reader. <laughs> or just like, not even real comic books, but just, you know, newspaper funny pages. But I also, I remembered, because Earth First has such a ring to me in my high school brain, I wrote for an open mic night, senior year of high school, a song parody of Phil Oakes's Love Me, I'm a Liberal but I called it Love Me, I'm a Portlander. <laughs> and it had love, a Earth First love, reference. Love Me, I'm a what? I didn't hear what you said. Love Me, I'm a Liberal. And yeah, then, no, no, no. And but what was your me, version? Love Me, I'm a Portlander. Love Me, I'm a Portlander. <laughs> you don't even have to change anything. <laughs> I know. <laughs> well, I guess updated it for more for modern times, although I didn't do a great job. But yeah, and for people who don't know, Love Me, I'm a Liberal is... Um, I think it's a wonderful, like, biting satire song. Phil Oaks was a folk singer who I think said that he sang all the news that was fit to sing or something like that and um, had a brief and tragic life and was very attractive, um, as folk (laughs) singers all are in in one way or another. And Love Me, I'm a Liberal is, like, this very catchy, jaunty folk song about having radical values at one time and then selling out and feeling pretty happy with that. And the sort of punchline of the song is, and that's why I'm turning you in. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That, 
that's a perfect song for for this moment. And yeah, that was what was in the air and your because uh, <laughs> you were in high yeah. school during a lot of what we're going to be talking about. I think maybe well, I don't it, actually know. Yeah. Well, and I wonder about you know just looking ahead how much what we're talking about feels present in the current moment where we're having this. It feels like unending mainstream cultural debate between should we fuck shit up or should we buy pasta in glass jars? And I say, why not both? I knew that. I literally knew that was what you were going to say. I was like, Mag- Magpie was like, hmm, I will not choose. I know. I will not choose. I My two big things I'm always saying is decant everything. Put all mm-hmm. your hand soap into a prettier bottle and all your pasta into glass jars mm-hmm. and fuck shit up. That's the two. I am okay with living by both of those. Sarah? Yeah. yeah. I think that that's how we have to do it. And also you got a carbo load if you're going to fuck shit up. The revolution can be interior designed. <laughs> that was really funny, Magpie. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, that was beautiful. Thanks. Uh, put that on a fucking bumper sticker, please. Yeah. That is perfect. <laughs> no, put it on like a live, laugh, love, like cross stitch that's framed. Exact. Oh, so, yes. A throw pillow. A throw pillow. Yeah. They need to totally. sell, that, sell that at home goods. We don't need any other pillows that say grateful. Yeah. <laughs> we need pillows that say pissed off. Yeah. But if people want to be grateful for hearing more of you on podcasts where can they find you oh that was so beautiful thanks i have two podcasts can you believe it in this day and age everyone has a podcast so i had to have two um to feel special so i do a podcast called you're wrong about where we talk about misremembered history i really have got to have both of you on at some point in the future And recently, we've talked about everything from The Exorcist to Billie Jean King. So there's something for everyone. And it's not all about the 70s, despite what those two examples made it sound like. And then I do (laughs) You Are Good, which I co-host with Alex Steed, and which is a feelings podcast about movies. And we recently did um, an episode that's our, our live show where we talk about Forrest Gump with Chelsea Weber Smith at SF Sketchfest, and we had such a great time. And um, there's nothing like crying a little bit in front of people who paid to come watch you cry a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, with with the microphone and Zoom, you can pretend like there's not an audience. But yeah, you're like I'm just having stage. a moment with the shampoo bottle I've been holding since I was five. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, if people want to see more of what I do, they can look at pictures of my dog on Instagram at mm. Margaret Kiljoy, and they can follow me on Substack at Margaret Kiljoy, and my most recent book is a tabletop role-playing game called Penumbra City. So if you want to fuck shit up safely with your friends... You can do that. Okay, wait. The How I'm going to try and tie it together. When I was organizing Earth First in Portland in the mid-aughts, I was running a Dungeons & Dragons game. And 
wow, I don't know the legality of what I'm, what I'm about to say. I would give um, in-game rewards to when my players would get arrested at Earth First events. <laughs> <laughs> no one was like planning. Well, actually, Earth First often plans to get people arrested. But, mm-hmm. you know, one of one of my players, you know, spent a night in jail and was interrogated by the FBI or whatever because it was green scare times. And um, literally, they had just hung a banner in a tree mm-hmm. and got tackled and hurt. This is a complete tangent. Sophie, you got anything you want to plug? Yeah, I'll plug uh, Cool Zone Media's newest podcast. It's called Better Offline. It is all about how big tech and Silicon Valley is uh, infiltrating our minds and our daily lives. Uh, so check that out. It's a weekly podcast uh, every Wednesday. Mm. God bless you, Cool Zone. Oh, God bless you, Sarah Marshall. Yeah. God bless us, everyone. That's exactly what I was thinking. Uh, Bye! Cool People Who Did Cool Stuff is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals. It's not about being the best in the world. It's about doing what's best for the world. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Farm to store in days, not weeks. That's 80 Acres Farms. Did you know most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate? But not 80 Acres Farms. Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's zero need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter.